Well, hello, CMYK community, and welcome to another talk podcast. My name's Matt, and as typical, if this is your first time just jumping in with us, we just want to say welcome. We're so glad that um, you would choose to just spend the next few moments listening in and hopefully being a part of a conversation around some things that we think really matter. And I just want to kind of kick off by just saying how honored I am Uh by the response that we've seen of this series so far. Um, As you may know, we're in week four of this series, Walking Through the Book of Lamentations. We call it The Art of the Lament. And what we're working through as a community is trying to understand there is so much hurt and pain and brokenness around us. What is a beautiful, healthy way for us to process these kinds of things, whether it's something on our news feed, something going on in our own lives, something going on in our family's lives. It's just coming in waves, it feels like at times. And so how are we supposed to deal with it compared to just denying it or pretending it's not there or, um, you know, throwing it to the side, whatever it is, like there's got to be a healthy way through this stuff. And so this book of Lamentations in the Old Testament has been just this beautiful picture and story for us to engage in and for us to find some practice as a community of what it means to have the art of the lament in our life. So those of you that have been picking this up and engaging it, practicing it with us, uh, those of you that have been sharing it, I uh, just want to say thank you. Again, it's just such an honor to see uh, these things that we think matter kind of start to get some legs on them. So thank you to those of you that are doing all of that stuff. I also want to mention really quickly before we jump into it, so we've got Lamentations, and this is the fourth week of this series, and then there's a fifth chapter that we're going to talk about next week. And then we're going to spend a sixth week, week six, and it's going to be a really shortened talk because what we're going to do as a community is in that sixth week, we're going to uh, have the full band there and we're going to spend some time kind of practicing this stuff together. It's going to be a a more music-filled kind of gathering, but there's still going to be a talk in the midst of it, but it's going to be more of us as a community practicing this stuff. So um, I, I just want to say if you're looking for a space or a venue that you can maybe practice this stuff, and all you've been doing is listening to the podcast, which is great. Uh, maybe uh, this might be your invitation to to just come be a part of one of our Sunday gatherings. We meet on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. at Art House Cinema, and you're always welcome. Everybody's always welcome to come and be a part of it. I give this same talk that you listen to on the podcast live there, uh, and it's just obviously more community-centric because it's a group of people that are gathering together and connecting along with these things. So anyways, in two weeks, we just want to make sure that you know uh, it's the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Come be a part of this last week of the art of the laments. All right, we're jumping into Lamentations chapter 4. And remember, this is a text written by, narrated by a group of people that have literally watched their world crumble around them. And I think it's continually important to remember like things that we lament or things that we get frustrated by, these people have watched it to an even more extreme level. We may suffer or struggle with where our country is headed. They literally don't have a country anymore. We may suffer or struggle with relationships that are on the rocks and we're not okay with, and they literally might not even have relationships anymore. They are in exile we might struggle with some faith, doubt, things like that, and their whole religious system has just fallen to the ground. So these people, this is an extreme level of lamenting. It doesn't mean that what you're going through is any less significant or important, but it's important to hear and feel and sense the weight of what these people have walked through and what they're walking through. Everything literally shattered to the ground and they're wrestling to pick up the pieces. This is what we see the narrator say in Lamentations 4, starting 
verse 1. He says, How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breasts, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. And those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. Where do we go with this? I think there's a couple things that we can pull from when we look at this specific text in Lamentations 4 verses 1 through 5. First and foremost, there's this idea presented that what once mattered most matters no more. What once mattered most matters no more. And to talk about that, I think obviously we need to talk about Beanie Babies. Beanie Babies are this thing that I I assume you've probably heard of or seen before. Many of us probably grew up or were around when they were in the crazy state of our culture that they were. In the mid-90s to late-90s in our culture, there were these understuffed animals. Many times they were bears that had a little tag attached to their ear that had the name of the brand Thai uh, printed on them. And... These things would go for about $5 typically, and they were printed in short, or they were created in short supply, and what ended up happening with them is people started to buy Beanie Babies not as just a toy, not as just an understuffed animal that they just couldn't seem to stuff all the way, but they actually became an investment because people started to see and believe that if I buy a Beanie Baby for $5, let's say, There was this thought out there that in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, this thing is actually going to be worth more than $5. It's going to be worth hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. And so it was this craze in our culture to just buy up all the Beanie Babies that you could. And there were these like glass cases that were (laughs) enclosed from all of the elements. No dust would ever touch your Beanie Baby because it would be this investment that you knew in a few years, it's going to be worth thousands of dollars. I remember this when I was in middle school and high school is when this was taking place. And it was this crazy thing because I would walk by Beanie Babies in the store and even myself, who was not interested in collecting uh, stuffed animals at all, I would walk by these things and start to think to myself, oh, maybe I should buy a few of those just so I had this investment. There were people that were purchasing them and believing that this is going to be my college tuition. This is going to be an investment. This is better than money in the bank for me to have Beanie Babies. So people collected them like crazy. And maybe you were one that held on to Beanie Babies thinking that one day these things will be worth some money. In fact, at the height of their cultural craze, Beanie Babies made up for 10% of all transactions on eBay because people would buy them and then turn around and sell them, again, for tens, hundreds, thousands of dollars more than what they purchased them for before because they were more than just a stuffed animal. But something happened. At some point, people started to realize 
that these were not actual investments and that people would buy Beanie Babies thinking that they would make all this money off of them. But after a while, everybody just had a bunch of understuffed, poorly stuffed animals, if you will, around their houses, and they actually weren't worth much at all. In fact, you could go on eBay today and find Beanie Babies that at one time went for tens, hundreds, thousands of dollars, and now they're worth like 30 cents, 40 cents. It costs more to ship them than it does to purchase them. In other words, the value that was once there is there no more. This idea that these would be investments and better than money in a bank is gone from our culture. What happened? Why would people go so crazy over something that at the end of the day, it's 10, 20 years later now, and we're looking at them and going, man, those aren't worth $10,000. What did? Why did we ever think they would be worth that much? Well, there's a lot of different economic thoughts and ideas as to what was taking place in this time. But what most people can agree was happening was this thing known as groupthink. And groupthink is this really fascinating idea that says within humanity, if you get a group of people around an idea, and that idea could be completely false, not true at all, and have no reality attached to it in any way. But if you get a group of people that actually believe this, groupthink says that that will become reality for those people. And Beanie Babies was an example of this. They have no inherent value whatsoever. It probably costs a few cents or a dollar or two to actually produce a Beanie Baby, but because a group of people And it started out small and grew and grew and grew and grew to this point where, culturally speaking, most people in America would look at Beanie Babies and say, yeah, those are going to be worth something someday. It was simply and only found in this collective group think imagination or idea that caused us to change and shape our reality that people were investing them in them to the level that we saw. It's group think. And for many of us, we might hear about this idea of Beanie Babies having this impact because of group thinking. We're like, man, I get it that there's some people that are like that, but not me, man. <clears throat> I'm able to look and see that doesn't, that's not really valuable. I would never go after my college tuition off of a beanie baby. But group think is actually something that impacts us every day. And whether you think you're someone on the outside or not of that, the reality is most of us, if not all of us, are actually living and investing in and putting value in things that do not have inherent value. It's simply because groupthink has happened. There's enough people that believe or think this, and so we have bought into it, and now we live our lives, invest, spend time, energy, and money and resources in these things that really do not have the value that we think they do. You take something like a car. A car at its most basic inherent value is an A to B machine. It's something that gets us from location A to location B in a timely and safe manner. That's the value of a car, right? But we have leaned into this idea of groupthink, that a car is more than that. A car has more value than just that. And the reason I know that is because when it comes time for you to buy and purchase a new car, a new A to B machine, there are so many cars out there that we can get for hundreds or thousands, just a couple thousand dollars that will do the job, that will have the value of a car, but we pass by them and we would never ever consider purchasing that car. We would never pass by a 1983 Dodge Aries and say, yep, that's a good investment or that's a good purchase for my life. Why? Because a car 
and its value is not just A to B machine. A car and its value actually speaks to who we are as people. It speaks to our hipness, our freshness, our coolness, our ability to show our personality to the world by the kind of car that we drive. It's group think that's taking place. And so again, we will spend hundreds, thousands of dollars more on a car because we believe and we see that a car is who we are. Or you take something like a phone, this cell phone that you probably have in your pocket or your hand at this time. And it's this connection machine. It's got a value to it that allows us to stay connected to one another through texts and phone calls. It helps us stay connected to the world and what's going on. That's a good value, something that we invest in, yes. But a phone has become so much more than that because groupthink has defined a phone is more. Why do I know this? Because there was this thing recently released called the iPhone 10. Or every year there's a new phone, a new Galaxy phone, a new Google Pixel, whatever it is that comes out. And we think to ourselves, the minute that new one is out, our old one is obsolete. It's dumb. It's stupid. Man, this iPhone 7 is so heavy. It's so dumb. Look at how stupid this thing is. When the reality is, it has the same value it always had. It allows us to stay connected. But we know that there's something newer, faster, cooler out there, and we want it. Because, again, it speaks to who we are. It shows our image to the world to have the newest, latest, hippest thing available. And so we invest. We spend thousands of dollars. We up our phone contracts so that we can stay with the coolest thing out there. It's group think. We do it on so many different levels in so many different ways. We lean into things that do not have the inherent value that we believe they do. It's simply because we as a culture or a group of people have decided this is what matters. And what we see in Lamentations is there is some language being spoken for something that mattered, something that everybody collectively was going after. We see this in the first couple verses, it says how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. It's speaking to these things that once had so much value in their culture, gold and precious stones. But what's happened in this lament? They say it's grown dim. And the stones are scattered everywhere. And then, in other words, this thing that mattered most, this lament is a recognition of those things have very little value. It's meaningless. It goes on and says the precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots. In other words, these people that were once the it people within their culture, the leaders, those in power, the significant ones, they're now just like earthen pots. They're bottom level earth dwellers. What once mattered most, having power in this image and significance in their culture, is gone. Something about lament invites the bursting of this bubble of groupthink. It's a moment where you stop and recognize and see, oh, I thought that that had value. I thought that that had significance, gold and power. But now I'm in this place and in this state of lament, and it's here that I see that really doesn't matter anymore. It's something that we must look at in our own lives and in our own culture. That we have the same kinds of things going on in our lives. That we lean into things that we think have so much value. The amount of money we have. 
the amount of power and control, the image that we project to the world around us, the way that people talk about us, going after achievements and accolades and getting pats on the back, these things that can matter so much to us, and we spend so much time, energy, and resources going after, but then there are these times and moments where we must recognize, no, these things really do not matter as much as I thought they did. As much as I spent my life on them, they don't really matter that much. This is what lament does. A couple years ago, I was, I was going through this process in my own life. I'm just kind of uh, being honest about where I was with some things, theologically being honest with some things of just where I was in the world and belief and all of these things. And for me, these decisions and these choices that I was making, this progression that I was making was something that I, I felt was really beautiful and good and the right way to go about things. It was me being as just as candid and authentic as I could about what is this way of Christ, what are these scriptures, all of these kinds of things. And as I started to go through this and was talking with some certain people around me, there was disagreements around that. And particularly when it came to some, some people that I really, really respect and really, really wanted to honor and really cared of what they thought they adamantly disagreed with me. And it sent my life down this spiral of about 10 months where I was just going back and forth in conversations with these people that I care for so much and disappointing them and frustrating. There was anger and there was conversations where things were said that were hurtful and broken and messy. And for 10 months, I was in this state of just lamenting and being so frustrated and angry about how things were going in my world and how things were going in my life. I was losing sleep at the time. It was not going well. It was a season of my life that if you came up to me and asked me how I was doing, which as some of you did, my response would be something to the effect of, like that's all I could muster as to how my life was going. It was not going well at all. And I was carrying so much weight and sorrow and frustration. All of these things, lament, were taking place in my life. And it was about nine months into this that I started to ask myself the question, What's happening here? Why am I lamenting this so much? What's so frustrating and anger-inducing? What's so stressful for me about what I'm walking through as I think I'm making these steps towards a more beautiful life, a more beautiful approach towards the scriptures and the world around me, these kinds of things? And what I had to be honest about was I was lamenting the fact that Matt Blakesley, my image and my name, was not as held as in high regard as I wanted it to be. My image was at stake. And I was having people come up to me or call me and say, man, I'm hearing some really rough things about you. Like people are just rubbing your name in the mud, whatever it is. And it was impacting me greatly. And I was lamenting the fact that my image was at stake. I was lamenting the fact that people were saying not nice things about me, whether to my face or behind my back. And there was this process that lament invited me to see. I think that that matters so much, but maybe it doesn't matter as much as I make it out to be. That maybe there's this group think thing happening in my life that I put so much weight in what people thought of Matt Blakesley that isn't the most beautiful and valuable way for me to live my life. I think one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves in the midst of the lament, if you're processing something and something's heavy and hard for you, is to just ask the question, why 
is this mattering so much? Why is this affecting me so much? Because sometimes it is things that truly have significant value, and that's what we're lamenting. But many times, we spend our days and our lives lamenting things that have actual, no inherent value, a loss of money. That we know life is not about money, but we get caught up in this idea. We know that life is not about power or accolades or achievements or pats on the back, control, or our image, but we get caught up in it. And many times, if we can just stop and ask ourselves the question in the midst of the lament, am I living my life? Am I lamenting beanie babies here? (laughs) Something that really has no inherent value, but I've just got caught up in it. And it's an invitation to see that. But more than just that, more than just what mattered most matters no more, lament is also an invitation to see what truly matters can be recentered. That there's something that is valuable, something that is inherently significant to you as a person and the world around us. And lament is an invitation to say, okay, these things don't matter, but here are things that really do. In that situation I was walking through a couple years ago, I had a lunch meeting with someone, again, that's really dear and close to me. And going into this lunch conversation, I knew that he and I would kind of stand on different sides of this theological belief issue that I had raised for my life. And I knew going into it, this is going to be not a fun conversation. And boy, howdy wasn't. (laughs) Was it not? Uh, Because for about an hour and a half to two hours, this guy, again, that It was really important to me, just laid into me and just was angry and mad and said things that some of the hardest things I've ever had said to me. It was not a good conversation. And it was one of those conversations that I knew at the end of it, like, we're not going to find common ground. We're not going to like just hug it out and everything's going to be okay. I just knew like this is headed towards a breaking in relationship. This is headed towards this tension where we're going to leave this meal and it's going to be a well, see you later, and we walk away from each other. And that's what it was. I walked away from this lunch, and I had this thought of like, man, am am I ever going to have close relationship with this guy again? Or is it gone forever? What do I do with this? And a couple weeks later, tragedy hit his family's life. Trauma happened. And instantaneously when this trauma took place, I called him. I said, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? Let's talk. And all of that stuff that we had talked about and got so heated about and he was so angry and frustrated about at this lunch, it just took a back seat. Because in that moment, there was this recognition of, yeah, we can have these theological belief differences and they're important on some levels, but at the core of what's truly valuable is you're walking through tragedy and trauma And this matters. What matters is for you to be embraced, for you to know that you're not alone and that I'm with you no matter what. And instantaneously, there was this recentering in the midst of our relationship that I was fearful was never going to be there again on what truly matters. This is what we see and we experience every single time we're in a hospital bedroom and we're standing by somebody. And there's this sense in our heart, sense in our guts of, yeah, this is what matters. I, sp- I can easily spend my day and my life chasing after things, image, money, power, control, whatever it is. 
But here, in this moment, in this tragedy, it's this moment that we feel at funerals, this is what matters. This is what's truly significant. This is what lament invites us to do, to come back to what matters. And what we see talked about in this Lamentations chapter 4 text is this is what the people of God have lost. In verses 3 and 4, it says that even the jackals offer the breast and they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. In other words, there's something that's truly valuable and they've lost it and they're not seeing it. It goes on to say the tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. There are kids that are not having food to eat. There is something that truly is valuable and matters, and it's being lost. And lament, this lament is an invitation to see, don't miss out on this. As much as we can be frustrated about money, as much as we can be frustrated about missing out on achievements or accolades, don't miss out on what truly matters most. And one of the things the scriptures do from cover to cover is to continually point towards and continually remind anybody that has ears to hear of what truly matters and is significant. And in fact, the majority of the prophets, these people that were speaking to the people of God before this downfall in this text of Lamentations came, was text that was trying to point them back towards, you've missed the plot, you've missed the idea, you've missed what's truly valuable, don't miss this. That God, the divine, has worked incredibly hard throughout the scriptures for us to see this is what is most important. You have texts like Amos chapter 5, verse 21, God says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, God says. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. What's God saying here? He's saying all of this religious hubbub that you've created, all these festivals and feasts and sacrifices, all these songs, all these gatherings that you have that take place, they truly don't matter. There's not the inherent value in them that you think there is. I hate them. I want nothing to do with those. And then immediately out of this, God points towards, here's what does matter. Let justice roll, he says, down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. There's something that truly is valuable here. Don't miss it. The text of Isaiah does a phenomenal job of speaking to this. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 14, God says, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. (laughs) Isn't this how we want the divine to respond to our religious gatherings? I just hate this. He goes on, he says, they have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. He says, again, you've got caught up in this religiosity. It doesn't matter. Instead, God says, wash your hands, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice. You want to know what matters, God says? Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. And then one of the most profound and significant passages in all of scripture for me that I just keep coming back to over and over and over again. Isaiah 58, 
God says this, verse 6, he says, is not this the fast that I choose? In other words, you want to look for a religion, a practice that I'm for, God says? He says, it's to loose the bounds, the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? In other words, not to hide yourself from your own humanity around you. This is what God has labeled as important, as valuable, and as significant. That there are people in need, people on the outside, people that don't have Enough, the broken, the outcast, those on the bottom, those under oppression, those being devalued. This is what matters, to see and respond to that. And lament is an invitation back to these things. I love the way that Sung Chan Ra says this in his text, Prophetic Lament. He says, Yahweh's tearing down of these materialistic systems reveals that he is no respecter of wealth. He has taken these possessions away since they are meaningless. Unfortunately, God's people do not always see things the same way. And then later he says, God is not a respecter of our accolades and achievements. We so easily spend our entire lives going after things that don't matter. These accolades, achievements, money, possessions, power, thinking this is what a valuable life looks like. And all the while the texts, the divine is inviting us back to what matters. In that hospital room, that funeral home, with that friend in need, lament is an invitation back to that. So what do we do with this? How are we to respond to this? I think for me, it is found in this simple yet powerful act of learning to confess and come back. Confession is this interesting word for many of us because it can have a lot of negative baggage for us. To think of this confession can many times revolve around like a dimly lit room and a table and we're sitting at this table and there's like a police officer or a pastor, if you will, that's trying to pound on the table and get us to confess. I know you did it. I know you're a sinner. I know whatever it is, that picture that we create for ourselves, that confession has this negative baggage. Confession feels like this you know, incredible consequence and burden that we've got to bear. And so we kind of avoid it. We want nothing to do with it. This is not the language or the attitude of the scriptures, particularly the first followers of Christ at all. Confession had a completely different idea. I love the way the writer of 1 John says it in his letter in the New Testament. He says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, before we go on, we've got to understand and recognize the picture that's being painted here has nothing to do with like this darkness, this upside down, stranger things kind of world of like, woo, and we've got to step out of this demonic force kind of thing into the light where angels and God reside. That's not really the picture that's being painted. 
There's something else that's being spoken about here that he's saying, if you step out of darkness into the light, you have fellowship with one another and you have fellowship and interaction with the divine. Why do I know this? Because of what he says immediately after this. He says in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins. This is all about confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is this idea that we have a tendency to potentially live in the dark about who we are, where we are, what we've done, these kinds of things. And to step into the light is to confess, to speak, and to be honest about who we are and what we've done and the things that we've fallen short on. Confession is stepping from darkness in to the light, into reality. And it's in that step, in that speaking and just being honest with one another and with ourselves, that this text says it's there that we have fellowship with one another. It's there that we find interaction and embrace with the divine. A church has always been about people just stepping forward and being honest about this is who I am and this is what's going on. People being present, honest, open, and then embraced in love. Confession is not seen as some weight to bear, but confession is seen as some freedom for our lives. The weight that we bear is actually found in the darkness when we're trying to hide and pretend and not deal in reality of what's going on. Confession is found when we can go... and know that it's in this honesty that there is embrace and love, and grace, found with one another and found with God. So it's in this that we recognize that we, that we have spent our lives going after things that really don't matter, that we must confess and be honest. And it's in this that we see that there are things that really do matter that we have not invested in, spent time on. We've brought little value to them that we must confess and be honest. To personally confess those ways and spaces that we have been wrapped up in money and getting more and more of it, thinking that's going to be our security, that's going to be our namesake, that's going to be the thing that people talk about. That we get wrapped up in our image and power. We get wrapped up in achievements and accolades and people patting us on the back and that we must just confess Be honest and say, yeah, that's me. And in that, we can find what truly matters and is significant. But more than just personally, what we see in Lamentations is there's an invitation into a corporate confession to recognize that maybe there are things that I personally haven't made decisions about, but I'm a part of a community, I'm a part of a country, I'm a part of a people group, that we have corporately been a part of this. And I must confess and step into the light of it. And lament is recognizing, okay, there is something broken and wrong here. And we must, I must recenter myself and work to recenter us corporately, my community, our country on things that really do matter. To confess that we're a part of a culture that continually devalues women. It's crazy to think that in 2017, you could put my wife, Kate, and myself side by side for the same job 
And the reality is, is my wife is incredibly smarter, (laughs) sharper, more driven on so many levels. She thinks better on her feet. And my wife would get paid less. We live in a culture that (laughs) the tendency is to put both of us up in front of a room, and the majority of people in our culture would just look and point at me, Matt Blakesley, and say, that guy is probably a better leader than she is. And it has nothing to do with who we really are. It just has everything to do with, close your ears, for those of you that are sensitive, I have a penis. That's the only difference. And we are part of a culture that continually devalues women. You might say, man, it's only like 30 cents to the dollar. What's the big deal? Well, it is a big deal because that's roots of something that continues to speak to something that is inherently broken. We must confess that we are a part of a culture that has a consistent imprisonment and an impression of black men. And whatever you feel the cause or the reason of this is, the stats are there to show this reality, that this is something that we must reconcile, step into the light on and speak about and say there's something that is more valuable and significant, and we've got to point ourselves towards that. We're part of a culture of commodification of sex for our pleasure at someone else's expense and belittlement. That we, whether it's through ads that we see on a regular basis or whether it's through something like pornography, we continue to use human bodies as tools for our pleasure. And people are making billions and billions of dollars on every level, whether it's through ads or whether it's, again, through something like pornography, that this is people saying your value is simply and only your body. And we're part of a culture that continues to propagate that. And so we must step into the light and confess and be honest, this is where we are. We must confess our destruction of our planet so that we have what we want when we want it. And we, myself, Matt Blakesley, I must confess Christianity's history and tendency to manipulate and control. This is more than just the crusades that happened years and years and years ago. This is something that continues to happen today, that this is a part of our culture, control and manipulation through religion. And this is not okay, because all of these speak to how we have devalued human life that isn't my own. And this is so far from what truly matters. Lament is an invitation to see what matters most, mattered most, matters no more, and to come back to what truly has value, to recenter our lives on that. So confession is a first step towards that. Are you somebody that's seen these things and speaking about these things? Are you asking the question, whatever your lament is, why does this matter so much? And in that, seeing an invitation into a life of true value and that matters. This is our work as a community this week to speak these things and to recenter ourselves on what matters here in Billings, Montana, for many of us, here in our states, here in our country, and in our world, that this is what we spend our time, energy, money, and resources on. I love you, 
And I hope wherever you are and whatever you're doing, that you find this value everywhere you go and you're able to put aside the things that don't matter at all.